This is the Pain Information Network. We are almost at 100, knocking at that door. Well, uh, today I have some more guests, and you're going to hear airplanes in the background. You're going to hear water splashing because we're at a pool. <laughs> it's when I was in California, just uh, sitting outside waiting to go to the airport, as were many other folks, and uh, it was just beautiful out there. So what do we do? We uh, record our friends that attended uh, the KSEP meeting. And uh, these are really, really fun to listen to because we have some of the newer guard and some of the older guard in there. I'm going to be the oldest, but we have a newer pain physician who is just getting started, and she's she's just great. She gives a real fresh perspective. And then we have Miguel. He's going to be kind of our uh, mid-practice uh, expert in He's he's seen a lot and done a lot. He's he's very fun to listen to because he's extremely enthusiastic. And Lynn, well, I'll let Lynn talk about herself. She's a very very qualified pain physician that works at this little school, and uh, she'll tell tell you a little bit about her practice. And she brings a lot to the table every day for patients. So, uh, okay, I told Joe's going to start uh, doing some webinars. I'm I'm posting them now. And I'm just doing some of the lectures that I've done over the past few years, trying to get my feet wet with these webinars on paininformation.com. So tell me what you think. Go there, leave a comment, and also go to paininformation.com and review this so that, uh, especially on iTunes, we can rank. So you go to iTunes and you go to reviews, and then you give me a star, uh, one through five, and uh, your comments, and I appreciate every one of them. It's hard to get those. It's hard to navigate that uh, Apple website. I know that. Uh, the iTunes uh, website takes a little bit of familiarity, but you can also do it on your phone. I found the phone is a little easier. So a couple of things I want to talk about. Um, I was reading Pain Physician, um, one of the editors, and it's a really, really good journal. But what's special about it is it's completely free. So you can go to ASIPP.org, you can go to the journal, and you can go to the search, or you can look at the most current uh, uh, journal. And the, the one that caught my eye is kind of relevant to what we've been talking about with regenerative medicine uh, this month is um, uh, Wu et al., W-U, that's Dr. Wu, uh, and his associates uh, looked at plasma-rich protein interarticular at the facet. Now, what's interesting there is we've been talking about using PRP or plasma-rich protein at joints, and the facet is a joint, and we really don't do a lot of intraarticular facet joint injections because they just don't work that well. We do the medial branch injections that are off to the side. We get the uh, little small nuisance nerve called the medial branch. It's part of the main nerve that comes off the spine, and uh, we isolate it, and we do a diagnostic block, and then we follow up with an ablative technique, uh, usually with uh, heat of course, we've talked about this, radiofrequency ablation. And poor uh, interarticular surfaces are ignored. And that's usually where the pain is generated from, the nociceptive elements in there. So long ignored, and here we are now. We're injecting PRP in there like we would the knee or shoulder, wherever. And um, they had pretty good results. You can read that article or just read the uh, uh, conclusions. And 
they reported up to you know, 78% relief in uh, a segment of their patient population. It's not a big segment. Uh, N, N means number, is not that big, but it's promising to see this stuff. All right, another article that brings back an old topic, this old topic that I've been seeing on the periphery for quite a long time about polyunsaturated fats and their relationship to chronic pain. Well, Jesus Prego Dominguez et al. Um, published an article that looked at that, and there, were, there wasn't a lot of data, and they admitted that, but they didn't really see a strong association between polyunsaturated fats um, and pain. So maybe we can put together this uh, decades-old uh, question um, and come to some type of conclusion or else a little nudge to maybe more studies. And it, it gave me a pretty uh, big smile on my face when uh, Dr. Silverman's book, you've heard him on here, and you've heard Dr. Stats. They, they have a book that came out uh, that uh, is... Uh, it's a controlled substance management book in, in chronic pain. It's called that. Um, and it's also an additional um, caveat is they take a balanced approach. And they look at different topics. And my chapter in there, of course, it's 13. Chapter 13 is uh, dealing with difficult patients. And uh, I did that with Ms. Holmes, who's an attorney. And we just did some vignettes in there. It's kind of a... Uh, a fun chapter for me, and uh, the rest of the book is really good. High-end people, Dr. Webster from Utah, Andrea Trescott's in there, um, Stats, uh, Aronoff, a lot of people that are top in their field, and the book isn't that expensive. It wouldn't be bad to have on the shelf, and we've talked about this book on the podcast. It'd be definitely something a clinician should have on their shelf, especially if they write controlled substances. And even if they don't, they run into people that do have controlled substances in them. So it's important to know how to manage them and the risk and eventually the risk-reward ratio. Do I really want to add another drug? So this book was reviewed by Dr. Boswell. Uh, another really good doctor. He's professor and uh, chair uh, at the Department of Anesthesiology at University of Louisville School of Medicine. I've known him for a long time, and he's smart, MD, PhD. He knows uh, his drugs. Uh, he uh, has a strong uh, uh, pharmacy background. And uh, you add to that uh, the academic experience and his uh, leadership role uh, in the medical field. And you have some somebody who's a powerhouse when they're reviewing the book. And he, he gave it a f- real favorable review. So I'm proud of uh, Dr. Stats and Dr. Silverman. Good job, guys. Good job uh, editing and good job uh, putting it together. It was a labor of love. It was a lot of work. Um, I can tell you, putting these books together... They can sometimes be beastly. But uh, let's get to today's uh, podcast. And uh, almost at 100. We're going to get there. And I'm I'm probably going to want to change this music. I'm getting a little tired of it. Probably everybody else is. So, all right. Let's get to it. All right, Miguel. uh, Tell us a little bit about yourself. My name is Miguel Dominguez. Um... Actually, I've been in practice now 27 years. Uh, my background is uh, first-generation uh, Mexican-American, um, trained in the United States, um, 
since I was uh, five years of age. Um, I went to uh, undergrad at UC Santa Cruz and subsequently did my medical training at uh, UCLA and did a, fellow, uh, did a residency in anesthesiology also at UCLA and subsequently went into a fellowship at Loma Linda University in pain management. It's an interesting question because my interest in pain management comes about when, since I was in medical school, when some of my mentors were actually surprised that I had chosen anesthesiology when they said, Dr. Dominguez, you are a very social person. You lo- seem to love people. I think you should be going into family practice or internal medicine. And I said, yes, I understand, but I want to do something different. And Subsequently, when it was an anesthesiology residency, the residency was managing the pain clinic. At this time, pain management was very new, uh, back in the late 80s, early 90s. And so our pain clinic um, was was, um, supported and um, um, supervised by the anesthesiology department. And that's how I became – it gave me an opportunity to go back and actually come face-to-face with people and see – the continuity of care um, and being able to help patients beyond just providing an anesthetic, waking them up and never seeing them again. Yeah, so it was a- Isn't that something, though, that people back then, I was your era, too, they tried to go and push into a specialty based on personality, but what we liked was uh, patient care in another way. And... Anesthesiologists need some love too because we can talk to people. Can we talk to people or not? Sure, sure. And and, and back and back then when I when I actually when the fel- fellowships were very very young at that time there was really no established guidelines um, uh, for fellowships when I did my fellowship um, at Loma Linda um, with respect specifically to uh, procedures we then as an anesthesiology department we. We engage mostly in medical management and, and and injections such as epidurals and nerve blocks. It was the neurosurgeons who did most of the invasive interventional procedures that we all now we know that we are trained to do them very well. Okay. What else do you do in your practice? I do interventional pain, which basically means I, I'm able to offer patients not just the medication management. As we know, anesthesiologists are very knowledgeable in pharmacal uh, kinetics, pharmacodynamics, um, uh, pathophysiology of disease. Um, that puts us in a very unique situation where we're able to apply all these great medical uh, scientific principles to care of our patients. And so beyond that, offering them injections to locally treat pain that's not necessarily very invasive was also a, a, a great Opportunity in my practice, such as epidurals, nerve blocks, yeah. neuroablation techniques, and now, as we know, we have very advanced techniques such as spinal cord stimulation and intrathecal infusion devices. So yeah, diagnostic and therapeutic—that's what we do. And we're clinical pharmacologists. That's what anesthesiologists are. We clinically treat people with pharmacology. So, you know, you went into the right thing. You knew. Come on, you knew you had it right. Back to you. Okay, now, one more thing. Raj, you brought up something that's very important, and that's boundary violations. And being of a younger uh, brand of physician, you can tell us a little bit about that, how people look at you, and they, they kind of sum you up, because I went through that too. Um, Lynn, I'm sure, went through it. Um, 
and you have kind of a challenge because um, it's it's kind of a a different era. We've got the internet now. We've got uh, social media, and people just don't understand boundaries. So tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So I'm definitely on the younger side amongst all these colleagues here at the meeting. But all of that aside, I'm still a female. I'm young. Um, I'm attractive, you know, based on just regular people's opinions. But for the most part, it's the fact that I'm dealing with a patient and patient population that's already demanding and kind of already calling the shots. And sometimes they can trespass and violate the boundary of doctor patient relationships. I've been in my clinic, my own private practices. I'm triple board certified as an anesthesiologist, addiction medicine doctor, and a pain medicine doctor. But I will still get questioned. I will still get doubted. I will still have to prove myself, work twice as hard, stay twice as late, you know, work. And and that's just how it is based on how um, the impressions are of, of a new patient that doesn't know me. They might have looked on a review website. They've got those doctor review websites, which are not filtered. They're not screened. In fact, one of the reviews that was scathing and very horrible, I read it and I had my IT team, I've got a online reputation management um, friend team. They actually tracked the IP address to the address of a new girlfriend of my ex-boyfriend. So she found this venue, this this forum, to basically slam me as a doctor, even though I've never even had her as a patient, for her own personal agenda. But the thing is, I'll have patients that will say, you're nothing like that doctor review website said you would be. You're nice. You're not this and this and this. And I try to say, look, this is what's out there. It's not filtered. You make your own opinion. You're going to meet me for an hour. You'll see how my clinic runs, what my what my mantras will be, what our policies are. And then if you return because you want to continue and follow up and stay as a patient of mine, that is the final um, assessment that I'm looking for. I'm not going to start trolling vitals.com and yelp.com. By the way, Yelp is supposed to be just for reviewing bars and restaurants. It is not the right place to start slamming or praising your doctor. In fact, I actually have in my policies, patients are not, they're discouraged from doing any reviews, good or bad. And a lot of them want to do these, you know, very praising, complimentary reviews. But I tell them, I don't want you to do it. You know why? The minute that they put their address and they say that they're a pain patient of mine, everybody in the entire world will know that they have opioids in their household. So if my online reputation management, my IT team, can figure out an IP address and track it down to a location address, don't you think a patient says, oh, I just love my pain doctor. Dr. Jewel is the nicest, most caring, most, you know, most successfully, you know, treatable, uh, I'm sorry, treat, successful at treating my pain. The minute that they advertise to the world that they're a pain patient and therefore are likely to be getting opioids, they basically draw a billboard on a highway to their address of where the opioids are located. I have a lot of friends that work in the police department and my DEA friends, and they have already said there can be 10 fancy houses on one street, but there's one house that keeps getting picked on, and it is the little old lady that has pain medicines in her house. They're not stealing her TV. They don't want to steal her jewelry. They want her opioids. And how did she become known? 
that she is a pain patient? Well, she put a nice review about her pain doctor and had nothing but praise to tell, to say. So based on those types of um, uh, experiences I've read about or heard about at different meetings, speaking to other pain doctors, I now discourage reviews. I don't have a computer in my waiting room where a patient has to log in and put in a doctor review that's only complimentary because that's pretty much solicited. I don't do that. I know there's a lot of pain clinics that will have a review your doctor, say something nice, and be expected to do that before they will even be seen. That's not my style. If you want to say something bad or say something negative, say it to my face. Another issue is Facebook friend requests. I get Facebook friend requests from my patients, which is totally a violation of the patient-doctor boundary. And I also get asked out on dates by patients that feel that they can just walk past the fact that I'm a consultant-level expert in the field of medicine in their eyes, and that's why they're in my office to get the consultation. And they they just feel like they ha- have this ability to either hover and stand over me while I'm doing my medical, you know, typing up medical notes in the chart, or they can bully me into saying, this is what I need. Other doctors have given it to me, prescribe this, 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 and this, or, Hey honey, are you sure you're not uh, married? Cause I think I want to take you out. Can we get this meeting done and we'll go out for a beer afterwards? So those are my, um, my comments. I'm not sure what you think of them, but no, that's good. I, I, those rating sites are—they're uh, ridiculous, people. It just if—if uh, if you're judging your medical care from a rating site, you're listening to some random stranger who has an agenda that uh, either is positive or negative, mostly negative. But uh, don't get me going on that rant. That's a that's a big rant with me, especially with pain doctors. If we give you what you need, not what you want, next thing you know, um, I didn't get my X Y Z. Um, they go right to those sites, right, completely unfiltered. All right, Lynn, you're up now. Lynn, you are an academic at this small university, and what was it, Stanford? Yeah. <laughs> S-T-A-N-F-O-R-G. Yeah, Lynn's a big deal. She um, is at one of the most prestigious universities in the world. Um, And I think think probably it's number one, two, three. Uh, I'm not going to say what the other two are because one of them is mine. But um, all right, Lynn, you take it from here. What's it like being an academic doc? All right. Well, thanks uh, for uh, sharing. Uh, this is a great meeting, by the way, and a lovely venue in Santa Barbara for the annual KSIP meeting. Um, so I've been in practice for over 10 years. I um, initially was starting my MD-PhD uh, down at UCLA, and I did medical school at UC San Diego. I had some of the um, premier... Uh, mentors, Tony Yaksh and some others, um, when I was going through my training. So I had a lot of positive influences when I uh, was going through and developing my interests. And at UCLA, I also did some um, research with um, anesthetists and uh, Dr. Denny Ward, who runs the FAIR program. Um, And so was interested in um, learning about research on synthetic opioids at the time, and that piqued my interest later down in doing um, anesthesia as a specialty and eventually pain management. So um, 
I eventually did my training at University of Iowa, did my fellowship at Stanford, and soon after uh, went in to run the pain program at one of the Stanford teaching hospitals. It's called Santa Clara Valley. It's a county hospital, and we see an indigent population, very complex patients, uh, many comorbidities, patients that don't have the finances to manage their pain adequately. Um, And as you know, our program at Stanford uh, teaches us to approach pain with a multidisciplinary um, approach so that we look at the patient and consider other factors such as behavioral, such as psychosocial. Um, We look at physical therapy, non-opioids, interventions. So um, we actually do rotate through the psychiatry ward on our fellowship and become very close in understanding mood disorders and such, since that is such an important piece of pain management. And since then, um, so it's been over 10 years, and I also practice anesthesia. I'm board certified in both anesthesiology as well as pain management. And have done clinical research. I'm a principal investigator um, and continue to teach. And what I've found is that uh, an area of interest for me is in the perioperative setting, uh, persistent post-surgical pain, and what happens with patients um, that go to surgery and, for whatever reason, um, develop chronic pain syndromes post-operatively, and how do we manage those patients uh, more effectively? How do I, we identify them? How do we treat them um, uh, in a more balanced approach? And it's been a real challenge because not all the surgeons that I've worked with, unfortunately, are educated in this area, and we're trying to recommend all these other non, you know, non-opioid strategies such as perioperative blocks and such. And so it is really a team approach, uh, and I believe that education is key in all of this with our colleagues as well as our patients. Um, Working with pain patients is very challenging, but it's also very rewarding. And we are the patient's advocates um, when no one else is. Now, Stanford's doing stuff with chronification of pain, aren't they? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, what people don't know with chronification of pain is uh, chronic pain can start with an acute event. And that seems to be Stanford's kind of thing right now. So is that what you're talking about you guys are working with? That, that's a particular area of interest that I have, yes. Me too. Me too. Yeah, so take me through your day. So uh, a day of, of, first of all, getting up very, very early. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, filling in uh, emails and texts and whatever and then going through and reviewing patients for the day um, and preparing for patient cases and going through doing rounds um, in the morning, <clears throat> doing procedures, seeing clinic patients, going through and doing more rounds um, post-procedure. And you're with the fellows, right? Uh, uh, you're with a fellow or you're just by yourself. Oh, man. Yeah. Or with a, a Is there 26 hours in a day? I wish there was. Yeah. yeah. So, okay, yeah, the academic demands. uh, People don't understand academia, especially in the little schools like Stanford. um, They, uh, they can, they'll drain you. They'll drain you. What level are you now? Are you associate or full? Associate. But um, you know, the fact is, is it's it's all over. Um, Whatever 
you know, whether it is private practice, and, I, and I've had little opportunity to work in private practice as well, and it's a lot, I, I think that it's even more challenging in that regard. Yeah, Miguel, you tell us about uh, your day in private practice, full private practice. Yes, uh, private practice is also, I mean, there's no, I always tell uh, my colleagues, I mean, there's, you pay now you or you pay later, but basically it's, it's work. You have to work uh, very hard, um, and so we, as in, being in private practice, although I control my schedule, I may start a little later and maybe not as early as other physicians, but I'll start my day around 8.30 and go from 9 o'clock till 6 p.m., and sometimes I stay in the office seven or eight, depending on how many charts I need to complete. Um, or yeah, I'm it's a, charting. It's always right. charting. So basically, you're talking about a good ten to twelve hour day, and uh, that's why I allow myself an extra day of the five day week to catch up on administrative um, uh, tasks that I haven't, I could not complete during the four days of the week. Um, I schedule my procedures. Um, also on a particular day, uh, like Tuesdays and thir- and Wednesdays, and the rest of the time I'm doing medical pain management. Now, granted, I'm I'm a solo practitioner. I've had extenders. Extenders basically are either um, certified um, uh, NPs or nurse practitioners or physicians assistants. I've I've had some in the past, but currently, the past three years, I've been basically a lone practitioner, and so I've been pretty much. Uh, Overworked, but uh, I, I enjoy treating patients. The interaction, someone made a great point today on one of the lectures about how it's so gratifying when you engage with the patients. That social connection that you have with them is really so gratifying to me. And um, I love to come to these meetings because you see different perspectives. It reinforces some other um, uh, feelings that you may have as how you approach your your own view on managing these complex cases. But I tell you, I'm happy to go to work on Monday morning because I just love what I do. It's a privilege to be able to uh, take care of people. But uh, granted, there are uh, many challenges to taking care of this population, and I'm sure we could spend a great deal of time. Oh, yeah. We could. All right, back to the youth. All right. Listen, this is a, this is a deal. We got, uh, we've got some generations here, okay? Your generation sees pain medicine going where? I feel like the impact that the pain docs are making now and have all along been very has been very palpable. I've got patients that know my dog's last I mean my dog's name, I know their dog's name, their patients, you know, the patient's dog's name. It's I'm still maintaining a solo doctor practice with no extenders and I like that sense of connection as well and I feel that in my generation, there's definitely the doctors that are academia-bound, and they want to put out the papers, which are so important, and they further the field. And they also keep us cohesive because a private practice doctor sometimes may feel like a lone wolf. We're waiting for the DEA to come into the office. We're waiting for the Washington or California Medical Board, whichever medical board, or you're waiting for the patient to forge your name. So I feel like there's a lot of ninja, kind of cowboy, cowgirl style um, issues that we have to deal with in private practice as the youthful generation exists. But also we're employing concepts like social media. I've got a website that's very dynamic and engaging, but maybe a doctor that's two or three decades older than me 
refuses to go electronic and do that type of self-promoting. Oh, the website's mindyourbodyclinic.com. And I have another website called askthepaindoc.com. So that's just a, a way to have patients kind of send questions and we have a, a, a web-based interaction with them. But um, I'm involved in different ways as well that extend beyond being just a pain doctor. Okay. Lynn, next generation. All right. Where's it going? All right, from an academic and maybe private practice perspective, where are we going? This is a real challenging question with the shifts in healthcare management, a lot of larger entities buying up smaller entities, and uh, it is a little unclear to me right now with the Affordable Care Act and what may be repealed and not. But um, in general, I, I, I see us going in the direction of the... Um, for example, uh, multimodal, multi-specialty um, entities whereby we're working together, similar to the perioperative surgical home, the medical home, we're working together as a conglomerate, and um, so there's a better continuity of care for the patient from the beginning to um, the end of their treatment. So um, I think being connected um, electronically, that's going to be important, even though it's a hassle. Um, social media, I think, is going to just continue to boom. Um, I have become more um, familiar with Twitter in the last year and uh, than ever. I think it's a great tool if you use properly, Facebook, LinkedIn, all of that. Um, so that patients understand that we are working together and we're not isolating ourselves. But uh, in general, um, the um, combination of psychiatry, the combination of neurology, pain medicine, internal medicine, surgery, just everyone working together as a team to manage what appears to be a really challenging patient population at times. You take it from there. What do you think? Where are we going to be? Where's medicine going to be five, ten years from now on our side? Pain medicine. Oh, that, that is a tough question. See, we don't know. None of us know. And I don't have a crystal ball. Yeah, but if you asked us five years ago, would you say you'd had more certainty? I think ten years ago, if you asked me where medicine's going, I'd have known. I, I'd have been completely wrong, but I'd, I'd, I'd have known. And... Uh, it was a fallacy of false generalization. But if you could kind of guess five years from now, come on, we're the old guys. Where do you think it will be? Yeah. I really think it's going in the direction of um, of more managed um, care overall. Single, single payer. Single payer. Yeah. Yes, and I think that those of us who are in prior practice, like myself, I think we're the last of the Lone Ranger years. I think we're f- being phased out just because of yep. all – all the different regulations and how different um, groups are being taken over, and I, I think the train the train has left the station, and I think we're headed for that direction. Good or bad? There's always know. good. <laughs> there's always good and bad. I mean, there's always good and bad. I mean, I guess the good thing that I see is maybe maybe some cost savings on the short run, but in the long run, I think patients. What we what, we have a little glimpse right now of what I think we're going to see in the future, that patients are not going to get what they really 
when they think about getting good quality care, I don't think they're going to get it just because of the financial constraints we're going to see with a single-payer system. Let me make a case in point. When I was in medical school, I did a externship. My last three months, I had free to do my wherever I wanted to go. And guess where I went? I went to Mexico to do a gynecology ex- externship for three months. At that time, I learned something that I was able to apply to your question today. And guess what it was? It was I learned that the system in Mexico they had is called IMSE, I. I-M-S-S-S. It's basically equivalent to our Medicare system here, Medi-Cal, Medicaid system here. So in Mexico, they had, they had this cliche that it basically said that, that that system was very, provided very poor health care to people. And the only ones that used it was the extremely very poor indigent population. We know that a lot of those of us who live on the border, a lot of people end up going to Mexico, and those people in Mexico use the cash system. They pay for cash for their medical care. Uh, cash, huh? Yes. So my point is that I always predicted since the Affordable Health Care Act was coming in, a lot of patients would ask me, where do you think, doc, that this is going to go? And I would say, it's going to be just my experience, what I, I had in Mexico, where basically you're going to have the system, like Medicaid system, but most people who are going to want good care are going to have to pay out of pocket. And, yeah. though, and those that, that don't have anything, they're going to have to resort, again, to the single-payer Medicaid system. That's where I see it's going. You might have a catastrophic insurance plan just to cover in case you get cancer or some major surgery that is going to basically require high cost. But otherwise, I think day-to-day, I think people are going to have to be paying. Back to youth. Where are we going? And... Uh how will it affect you? And then just kind of your, as a closing comment, just kind of let me know what you could tell us um, as some wisdom because you just got out of training. You've got to have some suggestions for us. I appreciate all the predecessor work that's kind of laid where the future for us, our generation is going to be. We're very grateful, very humbled by the papers that, for example, today we were quoting North, Richard North's paper during one of the talks. That's a classic paper. So I hope that my generation in our, in our capacities will give us good research and good outcomes and good data that we can use to tell a private payer insurance, hey, cover this procedure. It's going to help the patient. This is a good outcome that is identified and is predictable. So I'm hoping that the research um, fervor and energy continues. I don't want to just know that it died down with the generation before me and we just kind of took advantage of doing the income and the living life part of being pain management doctors. Like I would, I would hope that my class would continue to contribute. Okay, good. All right. Middle, middle. Okay, any suggestions for, uh, I don't know, the world as we move forward, the older guys here? What would you say to us? So one point I have learned from different levels of physicians, uh, it doesn't matter where one is in one's training, how far out, we are always learning. That's the oath that we took, and we will continue to do that, I think, until 
the day that we die. I, I, um, one thing for me, I love learning, and I'm continuously learning with my patients regardless. So um, not to give up, I think, um, to be advocates for our patients, but also for our specialty, to get involved in organized medicine, whether it's um, a small community uh, hospital, whether it's a larger facility, whether it's state government um, and national level. But uh, we need to have our voice heard. We need to be at the table, otherwise we're on the menu, as they say, and uh, try to participate and educate ourselves as well as our colleagues as well as our patients it's a continual thing we're wearing multiple hats that's what's very challenging about our specialty i don't think other specialists necessarily understand all that we need to know um because we're really well trained i I have to say I'm, i'm very impressed by the training that i'm seeing here a little stanford thing huh yeah, that might have helped. Um, okay, Miguel. All right, we uh, we are the recipients of uh, advice a lot of times. Um, youth, you know, um, where uh, Lynn is at is academia, and she's really um, she's like plugged in. It's like Stanford is probably like plugging your head in a light socket when you walk in in the morning, and um, so. We are kind of out in private practice. I do a little academic stuff, but um, what kind of advice would you give these two? Start with youth. If you could give youthful advice, um, you know, where you want to be in 10 years. My advice would be this. It kind of goes back to kind of what we've been talking about, how we enjoy the patient interaction, how we love the intellectual stimulation constantly learning not only from our patients but just from the academic world and from meetings and um and it's just um to me that's just i think it's a privilege to be i always tell my friends and family when they ask me you know why you still do what you do and i go back to those three things of how uh, the 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 privilege of being able to care for people and for people to confide in you um, some really deep, you know, sensitive information that you really can't see it anywhere else. I, I consider that a privilege. And then being able to be empowered again with, with the knowledge and experience to be able to, um, to help um, the area of expertise that we all have, I think it's, it's awesome. Now, in terms of advice, I would say this. I happen to be also an accreditor for an agency of California for Outpatient Surgery Center. So I'm also on the board uh, that accredits outpatient facilities. It's called the Institute of Medical Quality of California. It's equivalent to Triple H, C, and JACO. What, what that has done for me is given me hope in seeing when I go out and inspect a facility, a surgical facility, I'm able to see how they're practicing. And let me just share a in with a story that hopefully will be encouraging to all of us. As I mentioned to you, Hans, earlier, I'm kind of out. I, I like to phase out into the into the into the horizon, but at the same time, I love what I do. And so, this experience I had just one month ago encouraged me more than ever to the point that a neurosurgeon who was a friend of mine from University of Chicago posted on Facebook about he was just frustrated. You know, he felt that doctors had lost dignity, lost respect. 
Um, you know, he posted even the fees he gets for a brain surgery of six hundred dollars. And you know what I what I posted is I posted the experience that I had of being able to 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 continue to practice as long as we're finding joy that outweighs the bureau, the bureaucracy that uh, headaches that we probably experience. So. Case in point, there was a, do- a physician who I went to survey, single, solo, plastic reconstructive surgeon in Beverly Hills, active practice at UCLA, I mean at Cedar sinai Medical Center, taking two 24-hour call a month, and he was 88 years of age. Mm-hmm. And I was really, really taken back, and I asked him, why are you still doing this? And he said, because it's not for the money. Obviously, I don't need a retirement account. It's because I love what I do. I, I, I love what I do. And what else would I do? So I think, it, going back, I think we need to find the joy, continue to seek that gratification of taking care of people. And I think if we do that, we go as long as we can because I think it is more gratification um, and it gives us motivation. It gives us inspiration. It gives us hope. And it could give us life yeah. for a long time. I so, so that's my that's my advice. Is just press on, press on as long as you can. Anybody want any closing comments? Want to add anything? Got anything? Last thing to say? <clears throat> well, thanks for. Um sharing uh, all these experiences with us and Hans you uh, you have a, um, a great opportunity to educate uh, patients in general so thank you for that and uh, there's so much technology I was just going to mention there are a lot of very very interesting things happening right now all the technology all the developments drug developments um, so many different ways non-opioid strategies that are um, coming on the uh, horizon too so um but as they say, it's not so much uh, how much we know, but uh, how much we care for our patients. So taking all of this into account, um, how we can become uh, better patient advocates and uh, deliver the best care that we can with the resources that we have. Okay, great. You want to say anything? Final word. Final word from the youth, our future. Thank you so much for facilitating moderating this. This was fun. I had a good time. I was a little, you know, caught off guard with the last minute invite, but I appreciate being here. And in terms of the environment where we're always worried about overprescribing and dealing with prescription drug debts and all the statistics and the data, I still want to let patients know that you should still seek out relief for your pain. In my clinic, we don't judge. If a patient comes in and they have a pain story to tell us, we're listening without any judgment. We're not assuming that they're drug-seeking. We're not picking on them for needing opioids to have their pain assisted or decreased. So don't suffer in silence because you're worried that you're going to draw attention to yourself if you do seek out pain management. But at the same time, realize that the doctor on the other side of the table that's going to review and examine and assess, that doctor is a little guarded. They might have had some bad experiences in the past. I mean, I know my name has been forged twice by two different patients, two different people. They were never my patients. They just got the data off the internet. So does that make me a little nervous when I meet a new patient and I try not my best to not 
pass any bias or transfer any negative energy. I do my I do my best, but just have a little bit of bilateral compassion. It goes both ways. I don't judge you. You don't judge us, and we just try to work together as a team. I always tell the patients, I'm not doing something to you. I'm doing something with you. So tell me what pain you're suffering because I'm not inside of your body to know. But at the same time, do realize we're not going to prescribe max doses or do anything scary or dangerous just to just to appease a patient's wishes that may not even need to be um, honored anyway. They might just need to be reexamined and reassessed. Perfect. Good way to end. And thanks, everybody. Now we got some lunch to eat, and uh, I, I do ambush people, but I appreciate everybody doing this. Lynn and I go back a ways. I know Mikhail for a long time. But I got a new friend, so um, congratulations. You're on the team. Thanks, guys. Well, that was great, wasn't it? It's fun listening to these folks and and talking to them and just, you know, sharing a moment. So the the take-home here, and um, Rajni said it, and it's important. We're going to have an entire podcast on this someday, uh, is uh, uh, barriers. And it's not that we don't want to come up to you and just be your best friend and hug you and and just be as, as close as you are to your family members and this sort of thing. It's not that. It's sometimes uh, due to professional uh, constraints, we want to have a barrier. But that doesn't mean we we can't all be on the same page and be friends and that sort of thing. It's just you heard from her. You know, it's it's something we face and uh, and we have to handle it appropriately. It's a fine line. So that was that was really great. I appreciate her input. So uh, thanks again. You're going to come back and visit me at 100, and uh, we'll see you soon.